Now let me pray and let's turn to the passage that Katie read for us uh, just now. Father, there are times when by your spirit you collect songs for us to sing on Sunday mornings that seem to already preach the passage that will be preached. And so we pray that you would strengthen us according to your word this morning. We are a people who want to come humbly and to listen to our God speak to us about your truth. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lift up Christ in our midst, Christ who did for us what was impossible for us to do for ourselves. Christ who set aside his crown to come and to provide the rescue and the ransom and the redemption that we desperately needed. And I want to pray for friends here this morning and for children who haven't yet come to faith in Christ. Holy Spirit, would you work specifically in their hearts this morning to help them to see the good news of being united to you? Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Here's our main idea this morning. Union with Jesus provides for us a deep peace with God and a driving purpose in life. That's what unity in Christ provides to us. Deep peace and a driving purpose. Now, what does unity with Christ actually mean? During the Revolutionary War, children who never would have fired a musket were caught up in the victory of the colonists over Great Britain. A player who never makes it on the field, never gets onto the court in the course of an entire season is caught up in the victory of the team that wins the championship. Children who don't earn a paycheck yet are united to the financial provision of their parents' jobs. In all these situations, one is united to another. When we throw our arms around Jesus by faith, we are united to his victory over sin and death and Satan in the world. It's just true. Our present and our futures are joined and connected to Jesus in a way that cannot be broken or interrupted or lost by anything, ourselves included. Now, we seem to respond to the sin struggles in our lives, sins that we struggle against in two wrong ways. There are two wrong ways that we respond to sin struggles. Sometimes we spiral in despair. We sit dazed in the wake of our sin. Shame and fear and condemnation erupts into this sense of despair. And so we pull back into the shadows of our relationship with God and with the people around us. Our situation feels unrecoverable to us. The other wrong response to sin is to stumble in indifference. We've decided to tolerate certain sins in our life. We give ourselves a pass. We bank on God's forgiveness and the forbearance of other people who love us. We become calloused and cold. We don't take our sins seriously. It doesn't break our hearts. Our situation feels unimportant and non-urgent. 
But our union with Jesus should correct both of these wrong tendencies as we think about our struggle with sin. A tendency to despair and a tendency to indifference. Union with Jesus Christ produces a deep sense of peace. We will bear in the aftermath of our sins some temporary consequences and discipline, but everything is eternally okay for those of us who are in Christ. Our present and our future is safe and secure because we are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. But union with Jesus also produces a driving sense of purpose. Because if I'm united with Christ, then I really can't take him into that particular sin struggle. That gossip-filled conversation feels appalling to me. Hating my neighbor feels disgusting when I understand that I'm connected to Christ Materialism feels hollow and a little bit like betrayal when I understand myself to be united to Christ, the supreme good. So I want to ask you for a favor this morning, and that's not to dismiss union with Christ as an abstract, irrelevant theological concept. I want to ask for your help to not do that, to not set aside union with Christ like it's not very practical. There's a pastor, Dane Ortland, who points out that our union with Christ is mentioned 200 times in the New Testament. I've been praying and working hard this week to help us feel how practical and how helpful our union with Christ is. Our union with Christ helps us to treasure Him. It helps us to fight sin. And in the wake of sin, when we're trying to figure out which way is up, union with Christ sets a direction. It helps us to counsel ourselves and to counsel one another. And what we're going to see this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, are four truths about our union with Christ, four promises that are true about every one of us who's placed our faith in Christ. The big idea, again, is union with Jesus produces deep peace and a driving sense of purpose. The first promise is in verses 3 and 4. God chose us in Christ. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We spent a lot of time on this verse last week because it tees up the first three chapters of Ephesians. It also tees up these next four promises that we're going to see this morning. Blessed be the God and Father, blessed, glory be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Chosen implies initiative on God's part. Someone chooses you to be on the team or to be on the jury. God wants us to know in these verses that he has the initiative, that he has chosen us, his people. He has selected or elected. He took initiative in the relationship. Now, when did God choose us? He chose us before the foundations of the world, before creation, before history. The Apostle John records this great line from Jesus in John 17, verse 5. 
Jesus is praying to the Father and says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God, I want to enjoy the glory of your presence that we enjoyed together before the world existed. Jesus prays to the Father as he prepares to die for God's people. And he says, I long for that time before creation when we fellowship together and we enjoyed one another. What God tells us in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1 is that during that same time, in eternity past, before time and history existed, God chose us. He chose us. He thought of us in advance and he chose us. But why? Why does God choose us? What's the point of his choosing? Paul says, so that we would be holy and blameless before him. A holy person is someone who is set aside for a specific purpose. It's like the fancy dishes that we pull out on special occasions. There's a special purpose. Pure, upright, clean are related words that help us understand the meaning behind holy. But Paul says not only are we chosen to be holy, but we're also chosen to be blameless. Old Testament animals needed to be proven to be blameless or spotless or unblemished before they were sacrificed on behalf of God's people. This is why we're chosen. We're chosen by God before creation to be holy. Here's Jesus making the same point over in John chapter 15. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus makes it clear to the disciples and to us that the initiative in the relationship is his. He chose them. They did not choose him. Jesus is the first mover in the relationship. He's the first domino that falls. He's the initiator. And he chose them so that they would go and bear fruit, the kind of fruit that will remain, the kind of fruit that will outlast judgment, the kind of fruit that will last for eternity, fruit that will abide. Do you see how this makes indifference with sin impossible for the Christian who's paying attention, who's invested to what God has done? We've been chosen in Christ, Jesus says, to bear holy fruit, to be blameless. But our ability to fight sin and pursue righteousness, our ability to be holy and blameless is ultimately and finally a work of God's grace, not our effort. We legitimately strive. We legitimately put sin to death and pursue righteousness, but it is God's power that's at work inside of us that makes all of that striving possible and effective. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul writes this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not empty and meaningless. In other words, it was purposeful. It was effective. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You can feel Paul's effort in this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. He's working harder than any of them. He's striving but it is the work of God that's at work powerfully within him that gives him the power to pursue the things that he knows God wants him to pursue. 
The fact that God chose us in Christ produces not only a driving sense of purpose to be holy, but a deep sense of peace. He is choosing, his choosing of us is not only, not merely a call to pursue holiness. It is a promise that we will be holy. It is a guarantee that he will finish the work that he started in us. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. There's a call in there. There's a driving sense of purpose that we should not be indifferent about our sin, but purposeful. But there is a reminder in this that there is peace with God, a deep sense of peace with God that finally and totally and ultimately our holiness rests on him as he's at work within us. In Jude 24, we have this awesome benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We stumble into sin all the time. But we will not eternally stumble. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who does that? The shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep. God chose us in Christ to be holy. The second promise is in verses 5 and 6. God adopted us through Christ. God adopted us through Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us. Let's, let's drop back to the beginning of the sentence. This is the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You have to diagram every one of Paul's sentences or we will be completely lost. Predestined is used only six times in the New Testament. The word has the force of establishing or determining boundaries and limits. Right? It shows more of this initiative to foreordain or to, to mark out beforehand. The truth has, this truth has challenged our minds and it has pressured our relationships for a long time. But what does God predestine? What has he said to predestined here? He's predestining us for adoption. God's design is to bring his children into his family. We aren't merely freed slaves. We are not just exonerated enemies. We are not merely healed sufferers. We are adopted children. We're his sons and daughters through Christ. We're welcomed into his family. Jesus is our older brother. A couple weeks ago, Dave preached a powerful sermon about God inviting us to call him father. We get the privilege of being part of God's very own family. Now, three, three phrases describe this adoption for us. In love, according to his purposes, and to the praise of his grace. That's what we get when we unravel Paul's sentence. In love, he predestined us. Love describes how God felt when he predestined us to adoption. It wasn't cold. It wasn't reluctant. It was loving. 
God's decision to predestine us for adoption flows from the intensity of his love for us. That's why he adopts. The second phrase is according to his purposes. God's predestining love is not random or passive. It is purposeful and intentional. It is according to plan. It's not random. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. It's intentional. It's according to his purposes. His decision to adopt us went according to plan. It was made before time, and it is executed in history. The third phrase is to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, according to his purposes, and to the praise of his grace. His adoption of sinners is praiseworthy. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. Let's be clear about that. Justice does not require God to forgive sinners for the consequences of their sins. He does not have to save, though we often act like he needed to do that. We turned our backs on God. We mocked his power. We trampled on his grace. We spat on his holiness. That's what we contributed to the relationship with him. Yet what wondrous love is this, that the father would give up his only beloved son to die in the place of his enemies. What wondrous love is this, that Christ would lay aside his crown and come and pay the penalty that we deserved. But it happened because God's heart was motivated to action. His gracious heart was moved out of his love for us. His love for us provoked him to action and we are left in response to lift up endless praise to this God who came for undeserving sinners and made us his own, adopted us into his family. Do you see what God has done? He's brought us as close to himself as he possibly can. We hated him. We hated everything that he stood for, but he forgave us anyway in love and according to plan and then draws us into one of the most intimate relationships we can understand. And it is not reluctant forgiveness. He doesn't forgive us and then keep us at arm's length. He doesn't leave us in the doghouse. He invites us into the family. Come, come into my household Move into my home. Eat at my table. Let me provide everything that you need. Call me Father. We are adopted through Christ as his sons and daughters. And there is nothing that you can do to stay adopted. Nothing. Because there's nothing you did to cause him to predestine you for adoption. And as we try to humbly understand how we interact with God's initiative and work in our salvation, and I know it's hard, I know it's hard, we must take care not to assume any role that gives us permission to boast about our standing before Him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which we'll get to in a few months. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
our decision to put our faith in Jesus is a real decision in history to respond to God's grace. God's gracious initiative, His Spirit has been working and drawing in creation and in the Bible and through the church and through the preaching of the gospel. He's been working in our lives. And by faith, we respond to His work. We decide to follow after Him. But we must remember that His powerful, loving, wise grace has been at work on our behalf since before history and creation came into existence. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, we see another verse that gathers all these truths together for us. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God adopted us through Christ. Third promise, verses seven and eight. God redeemed us because of Christ, not because of our own deeds, but because of Christ's deeds, we have been redeemed by God. Look at verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, that is the riches of his grace, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The language that the Holy Spirit guides Paul to use is emancipation language. It's freedom for captives language. In Exodus 6, God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Through an outstretched arm and through great acts of judgment, God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt with great power. Not so that they would be freed slaves, but so that they would be God's very own people who were freed from slavery. Likewise, God's people, as we've already seen, chosen before the foundations of the world, predestined for adoption, are enslaved. We are enslaved, or we were enslaved before we were saved to sin, Satan, and death. We were also enslaved. Before our redemption, we were mastered by sin. We were blinded by Satan. We were alienated from God. And we were destined for eternal judgment. So the question is, how will God redeem us? And Paul's answer is through the blood of Christ. That's how we gain access to the forgiveness of trespasses. In Mark chapter 4, verse 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Colossians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Redemption for those enslaved to sin comes through the work of Jesus. He is our redeemer and he does it through his blood. The question is, why does God do this? Why did God do this? Why did he send Jesus to die, to shed his blood so that his people could be free? Why would God come after us when we were running away from him? Why? Because his grace is that rich and he lavished it upon us. And not haphazardly, as we've seen already, but according to wisdom and insight. Before he created us, he knew we would fall. He knew we would need redemption, and he created anyway. And when we did fall, he came running after us, because that is the richness of his grace. That is how lavish his love is for us. And it is not just rich and lavish. It's not just thrown about. It is purposeful and intentional. It is according to wisdom and insight. So let me take us into a moment just after we sin. We've just let the gossip roll off our lips. We've just punched the steering wheel in the car. We've just thrown the phone down in exasperation. We just put the glass in the sink, knowing we've wrongly relied upon that drink at the end of the day to take the edge off. We've just booked a trip we know we can't afford, we never prayed about, and we're pretty sure we shouldn't have spent money on. You gather up those set of feelings that you feel in the wake of sin directly after you give in to that temptation. The awful sense of shame, the alienation from God, the isolation we feel from others, the darkness and aloneness that feels completely deafening. We feel in those moments like we've presumed on God's grace. We've let other people down. You feel unlovely, unworthy, and condemned. But if you are united to Jesus Christ, then you are never outside the reach of His grace. Your future is tied up with his. And your present standing is tied up with his. So no matter what Satan may whisper to you in those moments, no matter what insecurities you may be feeling in those moments, no matter what your feelings attempt to convince you of, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. No matter what you feel in those moments, you tell your feelings what are true. No matter what Satan may say to you in those moments, you tell him what is true. Isaiah 55, 6 through 8 is true. Abundant pardon for those who seek the Lord. Those who forsake their ways and their thoughts and return to the Lord. You say there's no way grace like this exists. You may know it here. There's no way you can convince my heart that these things are true, that God could be that 
gracious, that lavish, that rich in love. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord God. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. God says, I'm not like you. I understand why you can't receive my grace, but I'm not like you. Don't build me in your image. I don't show grace like you show grace. We are tempted to keep records of wrongs. We are tempted to make people pay when they wrong us. But not God. Not God. He has not redeemed us because of our own works, but because of Christ's works. We are in a relationship with him because of what Christ has done for us, because that's what God wanted to the praise of his glory. You may say that's impossible. You may say you've pressed him too far. You may say you've disappointed him too often. The Lord says, I'm not like you. Come and I will abundantly pardon. We need to remember this abstract concept of unity with Christ. Here's the fourth promise. God reconciles us to Christ, verses 9 through 10. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For most of this week, verses 9 and 10 were part of point three. By the time I got to this weekend, I realized I think that there's something unique that Paul wants to say to us in verse 9 and 10 that's unique from what we just saw in verses 7 and 8. The next blessing is unique, that God reconciles us to Christ. God tells us that he has told us what his plans are. God has revealed his plans to us in a way that is unique God has been steadily working his plans in history, and his plans, Paul says, culminate in Christ. In chapter 3, Paul will get even more specific about what this mystery is. The mystery is essentially that the gospel promises expand past the Jews to include the Gentiles. That is all non-Jewish people. That Jew and Gentile together will make up the bride of Christ, the church. That all the promises... They will be co-heirs of the same inheritance, members of the same body, partakers of the same promises. That's the mystery that we'll see in verse, in chapter 3 in its fullness. But here Paul says, I'm revealing to you a mystery that all of Old Testament history longingly looked ahead to the coming of Christ. The whole Old Testament is looking forward longingly for Christ, even though they didn't know his name. And the unfolding of history since Christ is animated and propelled by all that he has done. This is the mystery, that in Christ, all things will be reconciled to him. At the fullness of time, that is, at the right time. You can think of it as the moment a woman goes into labor. She's been waiting nine months, and there is the fullness of time when labor pains begin. It's the same concept at the fullness of time, when it's the right time, all things will be reconciled and united under Christ. That's what God has been up to. 
This has been his plan since he chose us in Christ before the world's founding. This has been his plan since he predestined us for adoption through Christ. That we who were redeemed because of Christ might be reconciled to Christ. Joined to him. United to him. Connected to him. And the plan is not just to reconcile his people to himself. Jesus will reconcile everything to himself. All that is disordered and dysfunctioning in creation will be reconciled and ordered and functioning well under Christ's authority. Colossians 1. Jesus is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Christ all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Before we close, let me stop for a moment. Because these things are only true if you are exercising faith in Christ. If you are not a Christian, then these promises do not apply to you. And that's the burden of this text. It comes with a call to respond to the Lord. It's an invitation to come and be reconciled and united to Christ so that all these things will be true. Because you struggle with the same things Christians struggle with in terms of loneliness, alienation, outmatched by sin, isolated from other peoples. These are common experiences to all of us. But the Christians in the room understand the hope of the gospel, that there is a God who came to be with us in creation, to be with us in the mess, and did the work to reverse the curse on creation so that someday we exist together without the labor, without the curse on creation. God reconciles us to Christ. Now let's go back to where we began as we close. We struggle with two wrong approaches, wrong responses to our ongoing struggle with sin. We spiral in despair or we stumble in indifference. Both approaches undermine Christ's sacrifice. In slightly different ways, they both undermine the sacrifice of Christ. In despair, we don't take Christ's sacrifice seriously enough. We think that his love depends on our obedience. And so when we sin, we feel in dreadful danger. But in his love, but his love depends on Christ's obedience, not ours. We are united to Christ. He's looking to Christ. And our present standing is Jesus' present standing. And his future is our future. We are safe. We are secure. We are in him. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are already seated with him in heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our futures are linked together as much as our present. But listen, in indifference, we also don't take Christ's sacrifice seriously enough. We presume on his grace. We trample on what he's done. We give ourselves a pass. We permit ourselves to dabble and dance on top of what killed Jesus, our sin. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's Pastor Dane Ortland again. The logic of the New Testament letters is that in order for me to get disunited from Christ, in order for me to be divided from Christ now that I've been unified, Christ himself would have to be de-resurrected. Such is the nature of our union with Christ. For us to be divided from him, having been united to him, it would be as if Christ has to go back into the grave to be de-resurrected. Christ would have to get kicked out of heaven for me to get kicked out of him. We are that safe. Our union with Christ should produce in the hearts of his people a deep sense of peace with God. I am eternally okay. And it should also produce a driving sense of purpose. I've been saved to be holy. I'm united to Christ. How can I bring him into this? And this helps us treasure Christ and fight sin. It helps us counsel ourselves and others in the haziness after we sin. We are united with Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to shake us free from the deep peace that he has won for us. We are united to Jesus. There is nothing that can deliver such a driving sense of purpose in this life than knowing that he has done the work to set us free from this. All to the endless praise of the matchless, measureless grace of God. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Glory to his name. Lord Jesus, we rejoice at our salvation. What good news that you do not count our sins against us. That you take our iniquities and our trespasses and you throw them into the heart of the sea. And that new heart that you give us by your spirit, that new power that's at work inside of us, gives us the strength and the desire to put sin to death and pursue righteousness. Father, what wondrous love is this? May you put in our hearts a desire to praise you with endless praise. In Christ's name, amen.